Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Tokushikai Inside Look podcast, where I share inspiring stories of Budoka around the world. Please share your favorite episodes with your dojo and community so this effort can be spread to more corners of the earth. This episode is brought to you by our amazing patrons over at Patreon. By donating as little as a cup of coffee to a bowl of ramen, they've directly made this podcast possible. If you're enjoying this work and can spare a small tip each month, it would mean a lot to me. I'll also be sharing the occasional behind the scenes clips and side initiatives that build on this podcast. You can find it at www.patreon.com forward slash Tokushikai Canada. Thanks in advance for your support. And now, on to the interview. Anything with the sword. I did Taekwondo and Jiu Jitsu uh, for a long time. So, this is actually what you guys are doing is kind of new, new and exciting for me as a, as a former martial arts nerd myself. So, yeah, when I read your email, I was like, this is cool. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, all right. So, yeah, I'm um, excited. Speaking of like that starting point, um, because I, I, I was able to listen to the podcast that you did with uh, the, the diving group and I've read some bio, but other people might not have kind of know your background. So could you maybe just yeah. share initially how do you, where you're from and then how did you get started with freediving? Yeah, for sure. My name is Sheena. I'm originally from Alberta, Canada. So I guess fellow Canadian, <laughs> um, which is the prairie. There's no ocean there. It's completely landlocked as you know, but um, I had tried scuba diving a couple of years earlier, I guess. So in 2015, I decided to take a career break. The idea was to travel for six months uh, and then make my way back to Canada and find another job. So just a chance to go do some scuba diving and see places that I hadn't seen. Um, so I left on that trip in 2015 and I started the trip in an island called Utila in Honduras. It's one of the Bay Islands. I went there for scuba diving. So I was doing my dive master course. And at the end of the three months, I took kind of almost on a whim a free diving course because I was walking past this like sandwich board sign on the street every day. And the sign said 20 meters on a single breath. It was for this freediving school. And I remember just thinking over and over, like, that's not for me. That's crazy. I like breathing. I don't like holding my breath. Um, but eventually someone who was doing this scuba dive training with me, the dive master program, he did the course. And he was not like a very athletic guy, a bit of a, a bit of a smart aleck as well. And, and he did quite well. He did the 20 meters and he came back to the scuba shop and he was like, oh, I did 20 meters. It was so easy. Uh, you know, what we're doing here with tanks and scuba diving is for, for chumps and you guys are all chumps. And I remember thinking like, hmm, so if this guy can do it, this guy, like, surely I can do this as well. Like there, there must be, it must not be like something you have to be super fit and talented, et cetera, et cetera, to do. So I took this course. I got completely addicted the first morning in the water, um, even though I was nervous the day before doing the theory session. And long story short, <laughs> that was 2015. And I guess technically I'm still on that, that same trip that was supposed to so watch out if you ever try it you might get a little bit addicted <laughs> so one thing I found interesting is um that kind of story mirrors a lot of us too because we're all either yeah. grew up in, we, we either grew up we grew up in the west so we're either Canadians we have a couple here that are that's from France and then somehow we got addicted to this Japanese martial art 
Yeah. And in your case, like you're in landlocked Alberta and somehow got addicted to the ocean. So like, could you walk us through maybe even how did you, why did you want to get into scuba diving? And then what was that kind of feel when you, when you realized that, okay, the ocean is something that is going to be your life? Yeah, well, it, it all started with, I guess, I guess scuba diving was like the gateway drug into free diving, if you want to call it that. Uh, my parents forced myself and my brother and my sister to take swimming lessons because, well, one of them can't really swim. And we spent summers camping. We were around like lakes and water. So not the ocean, but water. And they was like, you guys have to know how to swim in case something happens. And I actually hated it at first. Um, but eventually I ended up really, really liking swimming. So I would do the swimming lessons and, you know, did all the way up to lifeguarding. But then the scuba diving was, I thought I would never try that because I, I didn't like the idea of being, I guess, stuck at depth, not able to just surface anytime that I wanted to. To me, that was quite intimidating. I thought I would feel claustrophobic. But um, an ex-boyfriend's mother convinced me, but she was a scuba diver. And she said to me, oh, it's, it's about breath control. She said, when she was talking about scuba diving, she said, it's about breathing long and deep and relaxed and controlling your buoyancy with breathing. And she said, it's like an underwater meditation. And so when she said this, I was like, okay, okay. I, I hear you. So I took a course, which started in the swimming pool in Alberta in the dead of winter I still remember like that first moment of jumping into the pool with the regulator in my mouth, that first breath, for some reason, the regulator didn't, it's the thing you breathe through. It just didn't like go right away. And I was like, <gasps> and I just, you know, I stood up and I'm like, I can't do this. And the instructor's like, calm down, calm down, calm down. <laughs> By the end of the weekend, I was loving it. We did our referral dives in Mexico. Uh, and it was just like, I mean, for those of you that have done it, it's like a whole nother world down there, right? Like you think you're going to feel freaked out and claustrophobic, but once you actually get into the ocean, you see the fish, you see they're right there and they're not even that afraid of you. And it's blue and it's, it's actually like, you know, you can feel sort of the gentle water movement. It's super relaxing. It's, it's actually quite calming. And so I got addicted to that first. But then the freediving, like I said, was seeing that sign every day that said 20 meters on a single breath. I just kept thinking, no, I don't like holding my breath. I actually still tell people I don't like holding my breath. <laughs> I like breathing. I like breathing. I like breathing. But what I didn't realize when I was having those thoughts was that freediving is actually a lot more about breathing than it is about holding the breath. So <laughs> it's kind of a funny, I don't know, things things I didn't know then that I know I know now. <laughs> So before we move into actually that holding the breath while you're deep underwater, just quickly yeah. going over scuba diving, like the first thing you think of is it's unnatural to try to, to want to take a breath underneath the water. And it like, is. Yeah. So, so like, what, what is that initial feeling? Like, how did you get used to that first? I know some people um, here or maybe some people listening might've done scuba diving before I haven't. So I'm just trying to imagine what it's like to, be fully submersed for a long period of time and trying to breathe naturally. Is it naturally or is it a different type of breathing? I would say it is a little bit different type of breathing because you've got this device in your mouth and you, you do have to move. I would say like, I mean, I haven't measured and I, I haven't read too much about it, but it feels to me like you do have to move air a little more purposefully through it on both the inhale and the exhale. Um, so I'd say it's a little bit more conscious than what we're doing above land, but 
I only learned years later, actually, I only learned when I became a freediving instructor that our bodies are incredibly smart and they, they have sensors for, okay, when are we in the water and when are we on land and when our bodies are in the water and specific parts of our body, like specifically like the, the face, uh, especially strong over the eyes is like, it's sending a strong signal to your body to hold the breath. <laughs> like when your face is submerged, you are going to hold your breath. You're going to want to hold your breath. And so to actually have this regulator and then be kind of consciously like trying to breathe from it, it's going against what your body wants to do to survive. I only learned that much later. So how did I, I guess, get okay with that? Well, first of all, I didn't, I didn't know that, <laughs> but I would say learning in the pool was a big help because if something was uncomfortable, the bottom was right there. You could just stand up. Um, I wish the instructor in the pool would have rather than have us just kind of jump in and then start to take our first few breaths. I wish we would have just stood in like, you know, chest deep water and just put our face in the water and, and try to take a few breaths. But I guess um, the instructor thought that we were, well, they thought that I was going to be really good because I had all this background as a swimmer and like, oh, little did you know, I'm nervous just as much as the next person. But <laughs> but just really slow, purposeful practice in the comfort of the pool and just breathing in the regulator, like with the face in the water and then just, just feeling how it's supposed to feel when you do that. And that, yeah, there, there is a resistance. I would describe it as a resistance when you breathe. But that if you breathe sort of long, slow, relaxed, that it's not a problem. <laughs> so just learning to, to trust that. And then once I, you know, once I got that feeling, I loved it. I was like, this is super relaxing. <laughs> that is that is fascinating. I, like, I love the way that you just explained that, because I always think that if I wanted to do scuba diving and breathe underwater, it would feel unnatural. And what you're saying is the body knows that that's unnatural. It's actually the yeah. body wants to hold its breath. If you're going underwater, free diving is probably a more fit to what our bodies are used to than it is to go scuba diving in that sense. Yeah, I think now having learned more since then, I would, I would argue that. And I mean, I guess if you just... And don't get me wrong, I still love scuba diving. I actually just did my first scuba dive in like two years here the other day, and it was amazing. I saw more fish in like one hour underwater on scuba than I saw in the past year um, doing free diving. So I still love scuba diving, but if you really think about it, like it isn't natural for us to have this tank strapped to our back and, and the, the buoyancy compensation device and all this weight and then have this thing in our mouth. It, it's absolutely wonderful. Um, but I would argue that, yeah, in, in freediving is more, we've certainly been doing freediving longer than scuba, like as a, as a race. And I think it is more natural than scuba. Very cool. This is part of what we were doing with these, uh, the study group too, is to kind of figure out what part of our breathing is natural to us and what we've stopped doing. Because one of the reasons we got into this is we read that book from James Nestor, saying that a lot of us have forgotten what the proper way of breathing was. And I don't know how much of his, what he's found is true or not. And hopefully we'll get into that. Um, you mentioned him writing the book on diving, on free diving. Um, but just that yeah, basic so this concept is really you're not doing. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I haven't, I haven't read it yet. So I don't know if something I'm going to end up saying will be re repetitive or new, or I guess we'll see. <laughs> no, actually. So let's, um, yeah, let's go into that one then. You, you mentioned, because that's how we started the group, you mentioned that he also wrote another book, 
previously on free diving. Could you talk about your first impression on that? And then just thinking back now, like what are things that he got right yeah. or things he might not have um, understood properly? Yeah. Well, admittedly, I read it when I was first getting into freediving, which was several, it was a couple of years ago. And so my memory of it is not that fresh, but I do remember being simultaneously really interested in it. But also, if I'm thinking of the right book, there were a couple of things that I had sort of a, like, a, I guess I'd call it a negative gut reaction to. Um and if I'm remembering correctly, because I've read a couple of books where there's, I've had kind of a little negative gut reaction to, to freediving stuff, but it was like sort of this image of, of deep competitive freedivers just going out there and only pursuing the numbers, like no matter what happens, if they hurt themselves, if they get a lung injury, um, that this was somehow an accepted part of the sport. And I would argue it absolutely isn't uh, and shouldn't be. <laughs> um, if I remember correctly from the book as well, um, he was kind of by the end of it leading towards like, well, it's great all these people are doing on freediving, but you're not really doing it to like save the ocean. Um, I would say that there are some freedivers out there who are involved in conservation, specifically like shark tagging and, and things like that, which from what I've heard, some types of conservation are actually easier done on breath hold than on scuba. So those are the things that I roughly remember having some reactions to, but that said, I suppose it, it wouldn't hurt to do a reread since it's been a couple of years. Okay. Yeah. Well, it seems like you can always find people that are not like that are different than the general spirit of the community. Like they might yeah. take things over competitive or something. So there's always that case. Um, one thing, so going back to now, you've kind of discovered free diving and you started. Um, one of the things that I heard in the diving podcast was you were just practicing on your own, kind of doing your own thing. And then you decided to compete. And somehow when you competed, you actually did really well, this 75 meter dive. Can you talk about like just your general practice before you got into competition? And then what was it that you were doing that you realized, well, I can actually be good at this? Yeah. So before I got into, into competing, I actually, I stayed in Honduras for quite a few years. Um, and I became an instructor and I discovered that I really liked teaching people. And I really liked watching them have this, this same moment that I had when I learned to free dive, which was just to discover that you're okay underwater on a breath hold, this was amazing. And so I loved sharing this with people. Um, the timing worked out really well. There was actually like a job opportunity, right? As I was finishing my instructor course and I took it and I was teaching and my own training, sort of my own uh, development as a diver was taking a back seat to that, but it was something that I was working on little by little by little by little. Like anytime we had a day off, the other instructors generally chose to spend that on land and maybe do some, some partying, some catching up with friends, but I went out just diving for fun for myself. And, and I just got really curious because all these numbers that I thought I would never do, like they, they sound crazy. Like they still sound crazy to me. Um, you know, I never thought I would do 30 meters. And then once you do 30, it's like, okay, could I do 40? I never thought I'd do 40. And then you're like, okay, once I hit 50, like for sure, I'm done. There's no point in going further. So then you hit 50 and you're like, I'm, that's good. I'm done. And then like a week later you start thinking, oh, well, 60 is only 10 meters away. And so it just went like that. And I kept working on it just like little by little by little, not at all quickly. 
And one day um, we hired a boat to go to the north side of the island, which is where you find more depth. And uh, myself and three other ladies who I still call like my very good freediving friends, we pushed our boy out um, into this, this deep patch and we had like a, a handheld depth sounder. So we were checking the depth and my personal best at the time, I think it was 70 meters, which I had done in Mexico. And I thought I'm gonna try do like a one meter increase, 71. So we set the line to what we thought would be about 71. It wasn't marked yet, which was our fault, I guess. And, ah, this has gotta be about 71. So off I went, I was going, I was diving. I could kind of tell, I'm like, this is getting to be a long dive. So eventually I turned, came up. And when I came up, did my recovery breathing, I looked at my, my dive watch and it said 75. And that number was significant for me just because in that form of free diving, I knew that the current Canadian record was 74. And it was set by a woman a long time ago, something like 12 years ago at that time. And at the time it was set, it had been a world record. And so it was just this realization of like, you know, looking at my gauge in disbelief, like I just did that and I had no idea I was doing it. And and it, it's not that it was easy because it's certainly not easy, but it was, it was doable. And then thinking, well, could I repeat that in front of judges? Because in free diving to make your performance official, it has to take place in front of judges and, you know, be filmed and all this fun stuff. So basically in a competition. So that's what led me to sign up for the competition. Um, yeah. What an interesting experience. <laughs> Um, so that's your first experience and until, up until now there wasn't any like real professional coaching or like doing anything you were just doing it for fun and seeing stretching your limits yeah almost like a little science experiment I guess like it's a sport if you want to call it that that if you have a really curious mind and you're willing to be a bit of a nerd and like take notes and on the days when you don't have access to depth if you're willing to do I guess I'm going to call them experiments with yourself, but I don't mean that in an unsafe way. I mean, in a, in like kind of a curious way, um, then you can develop. I would argue that if you have the money for a coach and a training plan, that probably you can have that development a lot more quickly and effectively than if you're just figuring it out on your own or, or with the help of your friends. But, but yeah, it was, I was like my own science experiment, I guess. <laughs> So up until this point, like I'm just thinking about you're holding your breath and you're swimming downwards. If if I was holding my breath in a pool, I could just hold it to my limit. And then it's like, I'm just going to pop my head up above and I can start breathing again. But in this case, you also have to calculate how much time you have to go back up. So so yeah. what's the process for figuring stuff like that out? Well, it's uh, it's a big question. And I guess the short answer is, yeah, when you're doing depth diving, and there is free diving in the pool, by the way. So there is free diving exactly as you describe, where instead of going like for depth, they're going horizontally. And in that case, they can push themselves to their absolute limit because all they need to do is then raise their head at the end. But in depth, it doesn't work like that um, because, yeah, like you said, you have to go back up. So the short answer is to figure that out, I would say just takes an awful lot of time and slow and careful progression with like highly trained and competent buddies. So 
I mean, I thought I was doing 71 and turned out my margin of error was such that I got away with 75 just fine. But, but basically once you start diving deep, it's just increasing the depth, like a little bit like, okay, you know, let's say you did 70. How was it? Like, how did you feel at the surface? What did your buddies observe? Did they see you do anything funny? Do you remember any, everything? Um, how was the color of, of your lips? Because if the lips are more blue, it could indicate for some people like you were lower on oxygen. Um, how, how was the effort? Just all, all these factors, which you kind of have to try and get a good picture of after. And maybe it was easy. And if it was super easy, then, then maybe you increase to, let's say, 72, like just a small, small bit, right? But let's say you did 70 and you've, you kind of don't really remember like the last bit of your dive where you don't remember your recovery or your buddy says um, you had a little shake or your buddy says your lips were really blue, then, then it doesn't make sense <laughs> to go deeper at all. It makes sense to, to pull back and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat until everything is, is perfect if that makes sense. So slowly and carefully. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned a few things like the um, looking at the color, um, yeah. like what are like, what would a notebook kind of look like in terms of all the different metrics that you would? Oh, there's so many. And the way that different people experience them can be vastly different. So I have my own dive log. And for anybody getting into free, I don't know if you guys have logs for, for martial arts, but I have all kinds of logs. I have a log for, for free diving. Yeah, and I write um, I write notes about how I'm feeling during the descent, the ascent. Um, was I having urges to breathe or contractions earlier than normal? Were they different than normal, or were they pretty normal, or were they later than normal? Um, how did the exertion, how did the effort feel on the ascent? Like, were my legs or my arms burning? Did I feel a lot of lactic? Um, do I remember everything? is a huge one. And that one you have to have good buddies that you can talk to and buddies who are meeting you quite deep underwater. And you say, how did I look? Um, what was I looking at? Like you tell them what you remember and you see, okay, did, is that, is that accurate? It can be also really useful to film yourself, right? If you have a camera at the surface, um, how you are at the surface is I would say like a really big metric. Cause actually most of the problems that are going to happen on a breath hold, they do happen at the surface and not underwater. Um, so how was your recovery? Do you, did you feel gassed? Do you remember your recovery? It would be a big one. Were you stable? Were you breathing properly? Or were you having um, some uncontrolled movement? Were you having an LMC or a loss of motor control? In, in which case it, it is a hypoxia. And so that would be a very clear warning sign that you shouldn't go any deeper if, if you're experiencing that. But yeah, also the color of the lips because um, blood that's lower on oxygen appears darker and the skin is quite quite thin over most people's lips so most people not everybody I get it just from being cold but a lot of people when they're kind of close to their limit their lips appear kind of gray or kind of blue just low on oxygen blood being sort of drained away um, from that area so tons and tons of metrics um, but then it's just like, there's some anecdotal stuff as well. Like, like, how do you feel mentally about what you're doing? And this is something that is really interesting and, and frustrating for me as I keep going deeper is sometimes it's just, even though all the metrics are checking out, like maybe you're just mentally, you're not there yet. <laughs> so, and the mind uses oxygen, right? So if you're feeling kind of stressed about 
doing a particular thing, then that could affect the outcome. So that there's, I'm sure there's, there's more, there's gotta be dozens more things, but those are some of the things that I'm thinking about and looking at and writing about in my own dive log. One, one of the things I wanted to ask you was the, the difference between a, a beginner and a master. And I saw, I see that this kind of thing is actually quite similar. One, one concept that we have is uh, when we're doing our martial art, a beginner would look at only the sword. They would see, okay, the sword's moving fast. It seems to be cutting. When most of the corrections come with, are your feet in the right place? Are you using the lower body properly? In, in this case, so it's not like what normal people see. In freediving, yeah. what, what initially is coming to me is that most people think about holding the breath and going deep. Whereas when you're, what, you're, what I heard you say is, the important part is actually at the surface. So in preparation for the dive, and then what are you like after you've come back up? Could you talk a little bit about like what, yeah. what's at the surface? That's so yeah, important. yeah, yeah. And actually, something you just said really interested me. Is um, oh, I've lost it. Oh, about the difference between the beginner and the master and freediving and how you said most people think it's just like about holding your breath. Yeah, when people get into freediving, they're obsessed about like whether they can hold their breath long enough or not for a certain dive. And well, what my experience is, I, I don't actually, I mean, I'm sure I have, but I don't actually know that I've gotten any better at holding my breath in the last couple of years of freediving. I would say in the, in the beginning you do. Um, but now I'm not really even thinking about like, Oh, is my breath hold going to be good enough for this dive? Because my experience is your body will do absolutely everything that it can to hold your breath when you're underwater. Like new students often think you're going to get underwater and you're going to freak out and you're just going to, you're just going to try and breathe. And that's absolutely not true. Um, not until you're already so low on oxygen that you're, you're unconscious. Will that happen for, for a couple minutes? Will that happen? Um, so it isn't about, okay, I hold my breath enough to do this dive. It's more about, I would say, um, your relaxation level before the dive, but also during um, your ability to be comfortable being a bit uncomfortable because some of the sensations you're going to feel, especially as you get deeper and longer dives, um, especially sensations related to high levels of CO2, they're not comfortable. <laughs> Nobody likes them. Nobody on this planet likes the feeling of high CO2 that I know of, <laughs> and I'm no different. So your ability to accept that without reacting to it, um, your technique. So the easier that you can move through the water, obviously the, the less, um, the less oxygen you're going to use and the less CO2 you're going to generate as well. And I would say you're streamlining as well. So the same thing, the, the better you can move through the water, the more efficiently, um, then the less oxygen you're using, the less CO2 you're, you're generating. So relaxation <laughs> before and during uh, streamlining and, and technique, I think. Yeah, so there, there were two things there that one of them in terms of like holding your breath is how much air can you store, can you bring into your body? And then how quickly do you use it off? How do you think of each one of those things like technique wise to improve? Yeah, I mean, the answers to those questions, I think, are going to be really different, like person to person, and they're going to be affected by like the exact things that I just, um, that I just, uh, I guess, listed, like the, the relaxation, right? Because the way I think of it, I, I only have a guess of how much air um, 
can fit in my lungs because I've only ever blown into the spirometer thing once for, for fun. And even then it doesn't know exactly how big your lungs is. It can just give you a guess of what you can move. Um, but I also know that there's oxygen stored in our, in our blood. And I believe also in like the muscles and other parts of the body. So I don't know exactly. I know if I put a, a um, fingertip pulse oximeter on, I know it can have a look and it can say you're at 99 or 98 or whatever, which is about as good as you're going to get. <laughs> you're fully oxygenated. Um, but in terms of, okay, how much do I use and how much do I need to use to do a certain type of dive? Well, until they invent a, a dive watch, I'd say this is my crazy business idea. One day they're going to invent like a little nano robot that they put into your bloodstream and it's going to transmit through Bluetooth data about your oxygen saturation to your, your dive watch. And then you can set up alarms based on all of this stuff that you're just asking. And then it can say like, let's say you're on the way down, you're trying 90 meters. This computer could like do a calculation and it can be like, no, you, you can't make it on this dive. You don't have enough. And so it would like send you an alert, but this doesn't exist yet. <laughs> and so until it does, you, you have to be like, I guess you have to get to know yourself really well. And we do all, I think all of us without exception, occasionally make hopefully just minor mistakes. When we, we do this calculation, I would say a little bit consciously, but mostly sub or unconsciously, like we learn to, to do this. Occasionally we make a mistake. And in that case, we would end up low on oxygen. Um, but yeah, at the moment, it's really down to feel and experience. <laughs> it's so funny you bring up that because I just listened to a podcast yesterday on a blood glucose monitor where it's like, oh, cool. And as soon as you eat something, it could tell you how that is affecting your metabolism. And it's like, oh, you just ate a chocolate cake. You need to start exercising or doing something. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. It's probably coming very soon. Yeah, one day for freediving, if, if it continues to grow like it has, then it, it will. It has to. I don't know when, but like this would be, this would be super useful. But, but I also wonder then if it would kind of prevent you from, I don't know, like getting to know yourself in a way that you, you otherwise wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> as cheesy like as that is. <laughs> Well, any sport is going to have traditionalists that are saying like, yeah, it's about the person and not like technology helping you out and all yeah. that. Um, so one thing I wanted to just quickly go over was um, because we, we've so far, we um, at least the, the podcast that you did was with people that understand diving. So for <laughs> I'm looking at a pool, like an Olympic sized pool where they do like those dives. It's only five meters deep. Like I, I looked that up. And like your first free dive was 20 meters, which is like four times that amount. And then now you're going to like, I can't well, even- The first one was 12. <laughs> but I, I'm like, I'm looking at the Olympic diving. I was like, okay, that's pretty deep already. Yeah. How do you like, how do you even, is it just a, oh, okay, that's, you know how well, deep you're, I think that's the question. Well, the, the, the first course, um, the first day, the line was set to 12 meters and on the second day it was set to 20 and these were these were sort of limits designed for the course and once i became an instructor i learned that essentially people can reach these depths if they can equalize their ears and sinus 
using what I would gently call a variety of techniques and relaxation levels and still not have an issue with becoming low on oxygen. Like it sounds crazy, but I've taught a couple hundred students since then. And I've seen everything from like panic to tears to nosebleeds from the sinus to, and, and everybody's okay. Like the, the, the 12 and the 20 in the beginning, it sounds insane, but, but people can reach them whether they're relaxed or not. Um, but yeah, the first day was 12 meters and I actually was super intimidated, but the instructor told me just close your eyes and grab the line and just pull and equalize, pull and equalize. And so I did what she told me because I was trying to be a good student. And then suddenly I was at the bottom. And like, when you reach the bottom, there's that moment of like, like I shouldn't be here. But if you can move to the next moment, which is, but wait, actually I'm okay. Like I'm not in pain and I don't feel like I have to breathe. Then suddenly like it just unlocks for you. You're like, Oh, I, I can do this. Like it's, it's almost like a dirty little secret of the sport. The sport is something I think that sounds really, really hard, but um, for recreational depths, which at the moment are defined as being up to about 40 or 50 meters, it, it's really achievable for people without any special, I would say like fitness level or skill set. Um, but with training, definitely like with, with taking a course. Uh, a proper course to teach you like proper technique and breathing and relaxation. So, so speaking of training, um, we have a question here from Ron. Did you want to ask that? I'm just going to wait to see if he opens up his video. If not, then I'll ask it for him. Well, he's got a really nice preview image. <laughs> All right. So his question is, uh, what are your dry, so out of water training activities? Oh, at the moment, um, they're centered around fitness. Because us freedivers can get a little bit lazy um, since we're so used to like, when we're in the water, we have to be relaxed and the focus is on relaxation and efficiency that I'm guilty of in the past and many freedivers I know as well are guilty of being like, oh, well, you know, I can't go for a run or anything because it's strenuous and I need to save my energy for the dive and I need to be really limp like a noodle and relax. It's kind of not true. So at the moment I do um, mostly like high intensity interval style training um, because it's got an anaerobic and an aerobic component and there's possibilities to get a lot of lactic acid going. And like, let's say, for example, I'm doing a lot of diving with my bifins, which is where you would, you would kick like this. Um, well, as you get deeper, you need your legs to be kind of used to that feeling of, of burning and being heavy and working anaerobically on the way up. And so doing the interval training on land is one way that you can, you can prepare for that. I don't do at the moment really any breath hold training on land. There's been times when I have, uh, and that would be times when I'm away from the water for a couple of weeks or months. Um, then I have done some dry, they call them CO2 exercises or CO2 trainings. But um, at the moment, I'm focusing mostly on fitness. Uh, what, what's an example of a dry land CO2 training? Uh, so the most simple example, which or the classical example, is uh, to do a series of breath holds in your bed. So not in the water. Anytime you're doing breath holding in the water, you need to have a, a buddy, like somebody who's trained and could help you if you ran into problems. So you would do a series of breath holds in your bed and you would start with something that's about half 
of your best breath hold. So if your best breath hold was three minutes, you would hold your breath for a minute and a half. Um, but then you would give yourself a decreasing recovery time um, each breath hold. So maybe then you recover for a minute 45, then you hold your breath the same time, 130, recover for 130, 130, 115, uh, 130, one minute, 130, 45 seconds, all the way down to having only 15 seconds to breathe and recover. And so the purpose of that training is to get your mind and a little bit your body comfortable with higher levels of CO2. Um, specifically, I would say at the beginner level, your urge to breathe, which is uh, the thing that I think most people find the most uncomfortable when they're learning. So just kind of getting comfortable with what that feels like and able to relax when you feel it. So dry breath holds with decreasing recovery time. Is that only mental for mental training or does your body get stronger or able to more efficiently well, use air? Th there, is, there is a theory that, um, that we, we do have quite, uh, I've heard we have quite uh, good uh, sensors for CO2 that like our low oxygen sensors are pretty primitive. And I always picture them like our oxygen sensors as being like a light switch. Like it's either on and we have enough or it's like off and we, we don't and we're blacking out or it's kind of like flickering in between the two positions. But the CO2 sensors seem a lot more sophisticated. They give us sort of varying degrees of discomfort or urge to breathe or muscle contractions and things like this as the CO2 level rises. Um, and the theory is that we can actually train them to become more, what would be the word, more tolerant of high levels of CO2. And so that this type of training, well, this idea of exposure and then maybe some days of rest and then sort of slightly increased exposure is, is going to do it. So. so, yeah, we have training for the CO2 in that spectrum. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? light switch oxygen level like oh, what, yeah. what's happening there and then what happens when it switches off <laughs> yeah yeah so we have a couple of terms for hypoxia which is low oxygen so the i guess the most serious one would be a, a blackout which is a loss of consciousness due to low oxygen um, typically that would happen at the end of the dive <laughs> when the oxygen level is the lowest and and typically if it's going to happen it would be on the surface sort of as the diver um, releases their first breath that they were holding throughout the dive. And then they take, they start doing their recovery breathing. Well, unfortunately for us, there's a delay <laughs> in the time it takes for that oxygen to get into our lungs, into the alveoli, into the bloodstream, and then, you know, to the heart and then to the brain takes a little bit of time. So in that time, if we're close to um, our edge, um, we can have a, a cerebral hypoxia. So it's a, it's a blackout due to low oxygen. Um, the body's not out of oxygen, like we're not at zero. The figure that they teach in the IDA courses is that we're probably around 50%, but I, I think it would vary individual to individual. Um, but what's happening is the body is prioritizing, like we have certain organs that need oxygen, so our brain. <laughs> um, but being conscious takes a lot of oxygen, like looking at things and listening to things and and thinking, and we don't need to be conscious to be alive. So I picture it as the body going into like, like a computer sleep mode type of thing. Um, it's not desirable by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's important to understand that you're not actually out. It's your body uh, 
making a strong effort to actually preserve life. <laughs> and, and it works. I mean, I, I, I'm, if you free dive in competition long enough, you will see people experience this and you will also see them get rescued in a very quick and calm manner. They'll be breathing again in, in a couple of seconds. Um, the more common, but I would say less serious type of hypoxia, we call it an LMC, which stands for a loss of motor control. And in this form of hypoxia, the diver remains conscious or, or you could say semi-conscious. So the oxygen level is low, but it's not quite low enough for a full loss of consciousness. And this is where I picture it as that light switch. It's kind of like, you know, when you're a kid and you do the light switch rave thing, you're like flick it on and off and you're like, look, and the lights in the room are, are going, it's, it's like this. So your, your normal cellular functions are going to be disrupted because there isn't quite enough oxygen. And what you see if you're watching someone have a loss of motor control in LMC is um, like an interrupted motion. So whatever they're trying to do, the movement is gonna be interrupted. And usually what people are trying to do when they're at the end of a dive and they're low on oxygen is to hold their head up and breathe. So maybe they'll be holding onto a buoy or the edge of a platform or grabbing onto a line and it will be like kind of a motion often like this um, we nickname it the Samba after the Brazilian dance, which I can't do because in case you didn't notice, I'm really white. <laughs> so I don't have very good dance skills. I know that's a stereotype, but it's absolutely true in my case. Um, but a lot of like sort of shaking motion, usually in the head, um, the chin, maybe some wide unfocused eyes. It could be more subtle as well. Um, sometimes if they're grabbing high on the, the comp line, maybe just the hand is shaking uh, maybe just a foot twitches underwater, or maybe when you're buddying them, you actually don't see anything, but suddenly they look at you like, and you say, what? And they said, I just felt like some electricity. It's like, well, that could be it as well. So, um, so that would be, um, I mean, I'm going to use the term less serious, not to say that it's not serious because as the diver and the safety, like ab absolutely it is, um, but sort of easier to, to manage from a safety point of view, since the diver is still conscious. So that happened to you during a competition. Could you talk about that uh, experience? Yeah, so um, in 2019, I had my first experiences, my first proper experiences with hypoxia. Uh, and I guess I'll start by saying that they were absolutely my fault um, when these situations happen. I think um, there's not a lot of mysteries in free diving. <laughs> you know, sometimes people have a bad dive and they're like, why did this happen universe? And uh, well, I think really, if, you, if you're really honest with yourself, um, it's not a mystery. In my case, it wasn't, it was totally my fault, but um, it was a four day long competition, which isn't normal. Usually there's kind of like two days and then a break, two days and then a break, two days and a break. But because it was a short comp, there was no break. It was kind of on the athlete to take a break if they thought they needed one. And I was doing dives that were quite close to my limit in the first two days. I was doing, um, I did a record in free immersion for Canada and also with bifins, which is the kicking. And I did that one in quite a strong current. And then I made a lot of mistakes after I stayed out in the water for, I don't know, six or seven or eight hours watching my friends compete. There were about 60 divers. So it was quite a long day. And I had this water bottle, which holds one liter, which is not enough for six or seven hours in the sun. I can tell you that definitively now. 
uh, and I didn't have food as well. And, and you know, when you're in the water and it's hot and you're in the Caribbean, it feels great. You're like, don't realize that you're getting sunburned, you know, and then you're having a beer with your friends. You just don't realize what's happening until you get out of the water. And when I got out of the water, I was on the, the taxi home and I was like, I made a mistake. I realized my face was lobster red. I was dehydrated. I was starving. And I was like, oh, this isn't good. But because I was stubborn and because previously I'd been able to get away with quite a bit in terms of how I treated myself uh, the day prior to a dive, I was just thinking like, okay, as long as you rehydrate and have a good sleep, have a good meal, everything, everything will be fine. Well, it wasn't fine. <laughs> so there was that, that sequence of mistakes the day before on top of that, the dive that I was trying the next day was my personal best. It was something I had done before, but it was my personal best. So mentally there's, there's a factor there, right? There's mental stress and it's in a competition. So there's stress with that. And it was going to be not a national record. It would be a continental record. So I really wanted it. <laughs> um, so I did the dive and at the end of it, I had my first proper LMC or Samba. And it was, a, it was, it was a big one. It lasted about 17 seconds. They said it took me in to do my surface protocol, which is, is quite big for an LMC. Um, so I disqualified myself during that, but I, I got, I, I got stubborn. I was like, Oh, you know, that was just a one-off thing. And I'm sure if I fix my mistakes, I can do the dive tomorrow which is a mistake that thought in and unto itself because people have shown like divers have have kind of anecdotally tested this out and and I'd heard over and over that if you are hypoxic that you, you your body and your mind have kind of like a almost like a muscle memory for that right it's like a neural pathway if you create that pathway and then you use it it's easy to then just sort of like use it again in the in the near future so what I should have done would be either just don't dive the next day or pull back, like maybe take 10 meters off and just do a dive for fun. But I was stubborn. So I was like, oh, I'm going to try the same dive again. And the result, which was absolutely no mystery, was a, a super small surface blackout. The first one and actually knock on wood, <laughs> the only one I've ever had. And I just remember being really disappointed, not in the situation, but in myself, because I knew, like logically I knew from everything people had told me and from watching divers compete and watching the decisions they make, I knew, I knew that this was a very real possibility for the result, but you know, sometimes the things you tell yourself, I told this, it's gonna be fine, it's gonna be fine, I just have to fix my mistakes. And well, lesson learned the hard way. <laughs> So yeah, how dangerous is something like that? Like, have there been serious issues? Um, with so, for example, like the ones that I had, I would say would be absolutely not dangerous at all um, in the competition. It, I mean, I guess if first of all, hypoxia is not a desirable result, and even though there are divers out there diving at quite a high level who seem completely comfortable to repeat that as a result um I'm not <laughs> and I wasn't I was really I was really disappointed in myself so that said if you're going to be hypoxic the competition is going to be the absolute best place to be hypoxic because you're surrounded by safety divers multiple usually four minimum three 
um, doctors, nurses, and other divers who are all certified and know how to deal with the situation. So um, you're in very, very good hands. Um, the problem I would say, the biggest problem I would say with hypoxia is if it happens when you're alone. And so this is where if you go on YouTube or you start digging, you can find or see stories of like free diver deaths, especially like in Hawaii, for example. And what these deaths are, um, I'm, I can't say 100% of them because I don't keep track, but I, let's just say like 99% is people who went out spearfishing and they went out without a buddy. So I believe like every sport has risk and we mitigate risk in freediving by never freediving alone. We freedive with a buddy and I would add not anybody, like it has to be a buddy who's qualified and trained, somebody who knows how to deal with these responses. So a certified buddy. And if you go out alone and you run into hypoxia, the, the problem is then there's no one there to help you. And the real risk is getting water in the airway, um, which it doesn't happen like right away. But let's say like worst case scenario, diver did something crazy and they suffered a, a blackout. Um, probably they will end up face down in the water. And although they'll be okay for some sort of short window of time there because their body will do everything it can to protect themselves from drowning. Well, as their oxygen levels continue to, to, to drop, eventually they're going to take an involuntary breath and then it will become a drowning situation if they're alone. There's, there's, no, there's no other outcome. They're not just gonna uh, lift their head and start breathing. No, they're, they're not gonna come back. They're, wherever they are, they're gonna try take an involuntary breath. And that's where it becomes I would say super dangerous, but if there's a diver there, a trained buddy or safety who, who knows what they're looking at, okay, it's an LMC or it's a blackout and they are trained in the response, which is, I would argue way more simple than anything I had to deal with in scuba diving in terms of safety. Um, then that person can be okay quite quickly. Um, and with no, no lasting effects, unless, somehow in the commotion that they did get water in their lungs, in which case then they do need to see a doctor because water in the lungs kind of interferes with your lungs ability to do their job. So, but separate from that, if someone is there and they see it and they do the response, this person can be completely okay quite quickly. So. So in a situation, situation like this, you mentioned that the primary mistake was on the surface, the choice of going back in after having that, um, that event what are examples of mistakes like at the elite level now in the water that would either cause like cause it to be dangerous or prevent you from reaching whatever goal you're trying to hit? Um, so in terms of dangerous, I would say the biggest mistake would be how you breathe before you dive. So it is a lot about breathing. And if you breathe in such a way that you kind of artificially lower your CO2 levels before you start, so you, you hyperventilate either knowingly or unknowingly, it can be really dangerous because we need something to give us signals of like, when is it time to go up? And it's not gonna be oxygen. We don't have a great sensor for that, right? But we have very sophisticated and, and lot and strong signals that we get from CO2. So um, how we experience those and at what point of the dive and what frequency and you know, is it, is it normal kind of, are my contractions normal? Are they coming at the right time? Are they early? Are they late? Like 
this is all information that we're using to make the decision on when it's time to go up. But if we, if we suppress our urge to breathe by hyperventilating before a dive, then it's kind of like we're turning off our, our alarm clock. Like we're, we're turning off or we're delaying our signals that are telling us it's time to go up. Um, which means we could, we could carry on on a dive feeling great, but um, really we could be kind of a, approaching our, our loss of consciousness threshold at some point. So I'd say before the dive, a big mistake would be in the breathing um, mistakes that can prevent people from reaching their goals. Um, common one, and I would say not at all harmful unless the diver chooses to ignore it would be an inability to equalize. So you announce what depth you want to do the day before. So you say, I'm going to do 82 meters or whatever. And let's say you go and you try it and you turn at 75. So you turn seven meters short because you, you couldn't equalize your ears. Well, then you don't get full points for what you said you would do, but it's okay. You come back to the surface and you know, it's sort of a technical, a technical error. Um, the only problem with that would be if the diver realizes at some point, oh, I can't equalize and they decide to continue. Well, now you're risking uh, injuries to the middle ear, to the eardrum, um, which then you have to stay out of the water so that you don't get a middle ear infection. So not a wise choice, but I have heard stories from people. Um, yeah. <laughs> So you mentioned in um, the other podcast that there was one dive where you're almost there and then you had a thought. Could you? Oh, the one, the one that I said, oh, I'm going to make it. Yeah. So this was when I was trying uh, in training, I was trying a hundred meter dive, which I mean, come on, that's a, that's a, that's a crazy number. Um, and I was pretty freaked out because there's only uh, like officially, I think there's only like six women who have done it, but there's a couple more who say they have done it in training. So I'm thinking like, okay, I'm about to do this dive that only like a handful of women have done. And, and so, you know, just setting the line to a hundred, it was like so nerve wracking. I was like, Oh my God, like trying to get my, my mind together was like, you know, it's a mess. Um, but then I decided, okay, just, just go on the dive. I said to myself, just start the dive and see how it goes. So I'm on the dive and actually everything was going pretty well. Like I wasn't having any weird thoughts or feelings. My, my equalization was usually my limiting factor and it was working, it was working super well and everything seemed to be going according to plan. And rather than sort of being in the moment and just focusing on equalizing my ears proactively and keeping myself streamlined and relaxed, that thought crept in and it was like, Oh my gosh, this is going well enough that you're going to make it. And so as soon as you have this thought, right, of course, then your focus is just for that moment, it's gone. And I freaked myself out and I said, Nope. And I just, I just turned. <laughs> it was kind of a funny thing. And I have to just laugh about it because yeah, I could have gone there on that dive. I'm sure. But you know, that little breach in, in concentration. And then it's like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> and this is not something you could just like, soon as you surface, finish, and then you can just go back again. And no, no. So like when you're trying dives that deep, um, first of all, it's like, it's like a huge anaerobic effort and you feel pretty, pretty bagged after one. And so if you, first of all, if you try another one after some time, it's, it's almost always going to feel worse because you're tired. 
Um, but there are also some risks in terms of like decompression illness. So it's not like we're absorbing the amount of nitrogen that a scuba diver would since we're not breathing compressed gas at depth and we're not staying down there as long, but you know, hundred meters is 11 atmospheres and, <laughs> and it is a fast ascent with the monofin. It can be for some people up to two meters per second. So things like this can certainly, um, provide a risk of a decompression illness. So when you're doing dives that deep, basically anything over 55 meters, the rule of thumb is that you only do one just to, to stay safe. So it's like, oh shit, now I have to, uh, you know, wait for another day to try again. And then you have to make sure that you've slept right and you ate right and that your mind is in the right place. And so you have to be really patient. <laughs> But it's good. It forces me to work on that. Um, so we have another question from the group. Sure. I'm going to read it. Uh, have you seen the 1988 Luke Bresson directed film, The Big Blue? Yes. Yeah. Every freediver has seen that. <laughs> What's your impression? <gasps> oh my gosh. I wish there was no love story in it. That was so cheesy. But I have to say... Um, there were parts of it that were quite entertaining. Like the beginning of it was pretty entertaining and the, the whole dynamic between Jacques and Enzo and, and the character of Enzo is just fantastic. Like, <laughs> and the actual diving is like, so since diving, diving has changed a lot since then. Um, so now us doing what we do, like we're diving self-powered, we're, we're not using a sled like in the movie. So we're using our body or parts of our body to get to depth and then back up again. In the film, they're riding on a weighted sled and they're um, then they're riding the sled back up for the most part, which is actually no longer sanctioned in competition because there were some accidents like this form of freediving was kind of proven over the years to be to be dangerous because there's equipment and um, there's space for human error. And there definitely were uh, errors with equipment and, and human errors. And there's sort of one high profile story where a woman actually died doing this type of freediving. So nobody will touch it. Like the sanctioning bodies won't touch it any longer. So this is what they're doing in the film. So we watch them do this and we're just like, it's kind of, it's amusing. It's funny, like watching them sit on these sleds and they're, and they're hyperventilating super hard, which is like, we, we don't do this. Um, they're going down, they come back up. But uh, I would say, okay, final uh, review of the film, very entertaining, but not very accurate in terms of what's done anymore. And the love story, huh. <laughs> That sounds almost exactly like how we would explain uh, every samurai film out there. Yeah. Oh, you must have some thoughts on Hollywood movies. Oh my goodness. Because <laughs> there's so many, there's so many like martial arts and samurai movies and fight scenes. And I remember when I was in jujitsu, I was doing Brazilian jujitsu, you'd see a movie and you would see like a guy choke another guy and you'd watch it and you're like, that would never work like that. <laughs> you guys must you must go crazy when these movies come out yeah we've kind of gotten used to it uh just want to do a quick time check do you have another sure. 10 minutes or so oh sure <laughs> great uh so the second question um which actually aligns well with this is um what are the different types of um human like self-powered diving and how do you why one over the other why the difference yeah. So the, the main self-powered disciplines, which as I said, they're the ones where you're using your, your body as 
the means of propulsion to go to depth and back up again. So the one we start with when we do a class is called free immersion. Funny name. If I were to rename it, I would call it pulling. So imagine a, a buoy, or as they say in the United States, a buoy, <laughs> uh, like a surface float with a, a weighted line going to depth. And so you use your arms and the line as the means of propulsion and your legs can completely relax. So basically imagine like pulling yourself down an anchor line or something on a boat. So you pull with one hand and you, you equalize with the other. Um, this one is super nice for people who are learning because it's slow. So it makes it easier to uh, work on their equalization. The line is their physical connection to the surface, which is super comforting when you're learning. And, and even when you're not learning, this is super comforting just to be constantly holding this line, constantly connected to the surface. But also the line makes it easy to stop. So if you, if you want to stop or you have a problem, and I would argue that um, this type of free diving, free immersion, where you're pulling on the line, in some ways, it's the most relaxing of the self-powered disciplines because you don't have to use the legs. So the athletic demand of it is not as high as the other disciplines. So you could be severely unfit and still be like a pretty good, a pretty decent free immersion diver, I would say. I know for a long time I was hit, not that I was like obese or anything, but I just didn't really have any fitness to speak of. And so I was just doing mostly free immersion because it's not so much effort. So that one pulling on the line, um, the one that probably maybe some of you guys have done without knowing that it was an actual name discipline is called constant weight or constant weight with bifins. The name is silly. It comes from the, I believe the French chose it and it comes from the competition world. And all that it means is whatever weight you're wearing, like on a weight belt, or maybe some, you'll see some freedivers wearing weight on their neck. It has to stay the same. So you can't just put on like a 20 kilo weight sink to the bottom, take it off and then, and then float back up. That would be cheating. <laughs> so the weight stays the same, but what it actually is, is kicking, kicking with fins. And so the most common way that probably some of us have done it are, are with bifins, which means one fin per foot. So similar idea to when you're wearing fins for scuba or snorkeling, but kicking down, kicking back up again. Uh, in the competition, you'll see this is divided into bifins and monofin. So monofin being a fin like a dolphin tail. So both feet are going in one, one big and like beautiful blade and like every female and many males who ever see like a, a monofin, we're all, they're all just like, oh, it's a mermaid tail, you know? So you'll see that in the competitions as well as the bifins. They use different muscles. So um, they're quite a different technique. And then lastly, for the self-power, we have a discipline called constant no fins, which I would rename to be swimming. So the diver uses a modified breaststroke. So the stroke is sort of similar to what you would do for breaststroke, but modified to work underwater. Um, similar kick where it was the legs um, kind of coming around like a roughly like a frog kick, I guess. Um, and the diver is not allowed to wear fins or to touch the line. So they're just swimming down and back up again. So that I would argue is the hardest discipline. Um, also, maybe the slowest um, because it's, it's so much work. I would say this one requires the, probably the greatest level of physical fitness and, and perfect technique. 
Um, and the, the records in this discipline are, are shallower than the other self-powered disciplines because it is so much work. Um, I don't like it because it is a lot of work, uh, but people who do it, they get quite addicted. They, they feel that it's like the most pure form of free diving. And I get that, even though I don't like it, I, I understand that because it's really just you swimming down and swimming back up again. So, yeah, so we had the free immersion, which is pulling, pulling on the line. Well, imagine that's down. Uh, we had constant weight, which would be either with the monofin, like a dolphin kick or bifins, and then constant no fins, which is swimming. So we talked about the, the technique, like the actual styles of kicking or pulling yeah. um, and, the, and then breath work. Um, one other concept that seems to be very similar in all, all types of athletic stuff is um, relaxation of the body and then not thinking about things. So you mentioned- Oh, that. yeah. <laughs> um, so that's very similar to what we do in our practice too, but I wanna bring up another movie reference, uh, Free Solo, have you seen that? Yes, that's the climbing one, right? Yeah. With Alex Honnold. Yep. Without. I'm it. not a climber, so full disclosure, I'm not a climber. But somehow I end up watching, like, okay, that movie, but also on YouTube, I end up in these crazy, like I call them, click holes, where like you click on one thing and then it starts recommending you four, five more videos on the side. And so I'll click, I'll be like, oh wow, I end up in these climbing click holes. Where it's like suddenly I've watched six climbing videos on YouTube, and I'm not even a, I've never even tried climbing, and to be honest, I don't have any desire. But I will say what I've noticed is there seems to be a lot of crossover in terms of the mental side of things and maybe specifically like the kind of flow state that you have to get into when you're doing these things. And I've met a lot of freedivers who are also like they came to it from from climbing and and vice versa. And actually one one really good freediver when I was just getting started in competition, he was like, there's a book you need to read. I was like, oh, what book is it? Thinking that it was going to be a freediving book. And he told me it's a climbing book and it's called, I think it's called The Rock Warrior's Way. And I was like, what? I'm like, but I, this isn't climbing. I'm not climbing. He's like, no, you have to read it. And he's like, just get past the fact that it's about climbing and apply that to freediving. And it's exactly the same. And so I was like, oh, okay, well, if the you know, former world record holder is telling me to get this book, then I'm going to go and get it. So I downloaded it, read it. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, yeah, the climbing reference with free solo. Yeah, that's completely valid, I think. One of the and one of the things that they mentioned about Alex Honnold was that he has this thing in his brain that just naturally makes him not afraid, <laughs> or not as easily. Yeah. Do you think there's a similar trait to some like free divers that are able to go super deep in them? Maybe some of them. I mean, I have met a couple people that they just don't, they'll just try things sort of regardless of what they think the consequence would be. But actually now that I'm thinking about it, those usually aren't like the people I would choose to describe as the best free divers. I think I don't know, like goes back to that discussion about hypoxia where it's sort of like, what is your tolerance for risk? And is that an okay outcome for you or not? And, and for me, it's not. And for me, the free divers that I admire the most are, I'm not going to say they're afraid, but I think they just respect what they're doing and they respect the, the ocean and their own bodies. And 
And for them, hypoxia is not an acceptable outcome. And if something isn't right, they simply won't do the dive. And, and I mean, not necessarily like something isn't right that day, so they cancel, but the most successful ones that I've seen are the ones who can kind of set up their lives and their training such that like, there's only one sort of path to success, really. Like it's just everything around it that just get it so, so perfect. Like they just get all the factors controlled or as, as much as, as you can control. And then, and then in the moments they make the right decisions. So I wouldn't say it's a lack of fear more than it is like, I guess just like a really deep understanding of like what they can and can't do and, and, and who they are and what things need to be in place for them to succeed. There certainly are divers out there who I would say they absolutely lack fear. And those are the ones that they, they do go out and they kind of just, they're like, well, let's see if I can do it today. And, and sometimes they succeed and the results can be tremendous, but a lot of times they, they don't. And then the result is hypoxia or worse would be like an injury. And then, then you have to take time off. And so for me, that's not really the definition of like best free diver, I guess. <laughs> I hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, I just want to open it up to anyone else that might want to ask a question before we wrap. Uh, no, okay, uh, okay. So I, I wonder whether uh, you find a difference uh, when you're holding your breath, the timing, do you, can you hold it longer if you're diving down or if you're staying in your bed and practicing? For me, absolutely, when I'm diving. <laughs> I said at the beginning, I don't like holding my breath. And that's like, even though I'm doing this breath holding sport, I still hate it. I hate holding my breath. Some people love it. So there's a discipline in free diving in the pool called static apnea, where they're just holding the breath face down in the water, not moving. And some people love this. It's, I think for them, it's like incredibly interesting, the relationship between the mind and the body and your limits. And I've done it a little bit. I, I mean, I had to do certain requirements to become an instructor. And I did a few more times just because I was curious, but, but for me, I don't love it. And it's because I can just raise my, my head at any time. So my brain just gets the best of me, but but when I'm diving to depth, I'm not really thinking about the fact that I'm holding my breath. And I always tell this to students too. I say, there's so many more things to focus on when you're actually doing a dive, like the technique, the way you're moving, the way you're, you're pulling, the way you're equalizing, um, you're streamlining, you can start body scanning and releasing tension. There's so much to do when you're diving that keeps you busy that it's not really about holding your breath, at least not for me. But when you're just lying there, either in bed or on the surface of the water, well, and you're not doing anything, then it, it is entirely about holding your breath. And then I don't like it. <laughs> so I hope that answers your question. But some people love it. Important to know that some people get completely addicted to this, this static apnea thing. There's a whole mental side to it. And I, I admire the, strength, the mental strength that these people have that, that get addicted to static. It's crazy. <laughs> I have a question. Uh, we're commonly instructed to uh, only exhale while we're doing one of our forms. They matter. It may only last a minute or so, but you know, the kind of uh, the inhalation phase is kind of uh, you know we're encouraged to shorten that or kind of conceal it. So you know, so we're doing this activity, 
Uh, it's nothing like jujitsu, for example, but it's it's quite controlled. But they would they'd like us to kind of uh, continuously uh, exhale you know? for a minute. Well, but most most of the forms we do, I would say, are over in about a minute. Yeah. Um, what? Well, that sounds difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was wondering how you might think of that uh, recommendation or instruction. Oh, I mean, so I can't, I haven't tried to, well, I, I mean, we used to do forms in Taekwondo. I'm sure they're not exactly the same, but I'm, I'm thinking of continuously exhaling for one minute. I feel like that would be a little uncomfortable by the end of it, is it? I think like, so, yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Because definitely if you're exhaling for a minute, like your CO2 will be rising a little bit, I would say, by the end of that, right? Yeah. Um, I'm, really, I'm, I'm curious, though. Like, I'm curious why they say this. Um, probably there's a good reason. Um, I do know, I've been told, um, and one, one method of breathing that I learned for freediving in the beginning so in order to prepare yourself for the dive, now I do something different, which is in, in, incredibly boring and demystifying. But in the beginning, I was doing this breathing that had super long exhales. And I was told that it was to prevent hyperventilation for one, when you're new and you're nervous. Um, but I was also told that when you do a super long exhale, that your heart rate goes lower. And I questioned that. So I tried it a few times on the, on the fingertip pulse oximeter. And actually it seems like it works. Like if you do a long exhale, your heart rate drops a bit. I'm not sure why you, why that would be a good thing for doing a, a form or, or if it would be a good thing, I'd be really curious to know what the reasoning behind this is, because I know if it were me trying to do it right now, if you said, Oh, do a form for like one minute on, only on exhale, I would probably not be able to do it. <laughs> it sounds uncomfortable. <laughs> there must be a reason. I mean, I do remember from my own martial arts experience that, um, and I don't know, maybe this is part of it. This is just me making up theories. So just so you know, I, this is just guesses. Uh, when I was doing martial arts, we were uh, making a noise uh, every time we did a movement. And part of that was to tighten the abdominal wall. So the idea was to give yourself power, but also like if you're hit, um, then your abdominal wall is tense and you're not going to be as hurt, right? You can kind of take that blow. So I wonder if um, doing a long exhale, like if it is some way of kind of like cueing you to sort of gently tighten your abdominal wall, I wonder, I wonder, <laughs> just thoughts. <laughs> okay, so final, final question. Um, how would you complete this sentence and feel free to use as long as, as much. Oh, shit. <laughs> okay. Uh, free diving is connection. Free diving is connection. How would I, how would I complete it? Yes. Freediving is connection. Okay, freediving is connection to, to yourself, to the community, to the ocean, or the lake or the pool, if that's what you're diving in, <laughs> to the water. Can you elaborate? Well, I mean, I talked a lot earlier about um, just really getting to know yourself, right? And because we don't have this computer inserted into our veins that's telling you how you're doing. So you really have to get to know yourself, like your, your body and your mind on a level that I know for sure I didn't know myself before I started diving. So it's connection to yourself. 
um, to the community. Maybe you heard in some of my other podcasts, but this is actually why I compete is not, not, I mean, yes, partially for myself and for, you know, making official results, but, but my first competition, the experience that I had was that the other competitors and the safeties, the community that was there, and it's an international community, um, they were so motivating. And it was this environment of, of sharing. So sharing training techniques and ideas and knowledge, but also just a lot of fun and smiles in the water. So I made friends from all around the world and it was people of all levels. Like there were people doing dives to 20 meters and there was one guy trying to dive to like 125 meters. And we were all there cheering for each other, just as hard supporting each other. And I got addicted to that. Like, I was like, this is, this is such a cool community. So I, a large part of the reason I keep going to these, these international competitions is because I get to see these people again and I get to meet new people and, and we get to do this, what I think is absolutely ridiculous sport in the company of other people who find it as, as much fun as we do. And, you know, if we have a good dive, we get to smile and celebrate it together. If we have a crap dive, we, you know, get to drink a beer and um, moan about it later. Like it's the the community, you know, where it's not that big and, and, it's full by and large of pretty cool people, but then to the water as well. Like you had put in the questions, one of um, at the end, something about like, do you think we really came from the water or not? Well, well, I don't know. Um, I believe in evolution. So I'll tell you that much, <laughs> but, uh, but I do think like the water has an effect on us physiologically. And that's something that we can measure like when we, when we enter the water, like there are physiological responses that start kicking in in our body. There are changes in blood pressure and, and heart rate and things like that. So we're absolutely affected by the water. And I would argue in a, in a very positive way. And I mean, people have been kind of seeking out those effects and that connection for a long, long time. And I think this is a, another way of, of doing that. Or, or you could expand it to even say like connection to the underwater world, depending on where you are. But, but to get that physiological connection I'm talking about, like really you, you can do that in a swimming pool. If you're fortunate enough to be able to do it in a lake or in the sea, then, then there can be so much more, right? It can be a new way of, of exploring and appreciating the underwater environment as well. And maybe if you're somewhere where there's not much to see, then uh, this is this is the cheesy thing, but like if you're diving up and down on the line, you're not looking at anything, then people say like, oh, well, you know, we're exploring ourselves, <laughs> which is cheesy, but it is true. <laughs> so, so yeah, connection to yourself, to the community and, and to the water, I think. That's my final answer. <laughs> that is beautiful. It's a great sure. way to, to wrap this up. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. This was fun. This is like, what a cool email to get when I got that email from you. I'm like, what is this? And I watched, um, I watched one of the videos and I think it was with the, I'm not sure where they are in on everybody's screen, but on mine, they're on the bottom left. It's he Helen Cousin. I think you, you did a um, interview. Are you the, somebody was a physiologist. Yeah. Or, uh, physiologist, yeah. Yeah. So I was watching that one and I was like, and she was saying, I think it, she was saying about like oxygen being stored in like the water in your body. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I'm like, I'm learning things. This is cool. <laughs> so, so watch that one or part of it anyway. And then I, and then I emailed Patrick back and I'm like, yeah, yeah, this sounds cool. <laughs> yeah. I was so happy to see. Cool. 
I think there was a question. One more, Chris and say. Yeah, sorry, uh, having to do two things here, but uh, interesting talk. Um, yeah, and you, you pretty well scared me straight. Yeah, so it's okay. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, in a good way, in a good way. Uh, I just wondered, yeah, just to throw it out, have you ever dreamed? Have you ever, have you ever dreamed of your dive? Like one that, that I've done or one that I haven't done? Or... Has that ever happened? Uh... Yeah. I have definitely had dreams in which I'm freediving, but not that often. Usually I'm dreaming about everything around freediving. But I have definitely had at least one dream in which I was hypoxic, which I guess you could say it was a nightmare because I don't want to end up that way. And I've definitely had dreams where I was freediving, but not like dreams where I'm actually on the dive, more sort of situational dreams where I'm, like, you know, I'm in the water next to the boy or I'm here in Dominica at the platform and like we, we're, we're doing free diving, but I'm not actually underwater, <laughs> which is funny now that you mention it. I wonder why I'm not dreaming about the underwater part, just, just the surface if, part. I just thought if, uh, if you ever uh, experienced uh, lucid dreaming that you could oh. go to any depths you, you wanted. That's true. <laughs> That's, that is true. That would be amazing. Yeah. And then to come back and then, yeah, 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 that is possible. Yes. I saw. I was there. Nee. <laughs> well, now I know what I'm going to Google search later today. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank You're you so welcome. much. Yeah, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for yeah, coming. Thank you, guys. This was a fun, fun way to spend the afternoon. <laughs> okay. So, um, we will, I will want to post this online, but you will get to see the whole thing before. And oh, cool. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, so I'll be in touch in a few weeks. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Y'all. All right. Take okay. care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed that episode because we have a lot more exciting conversations to share as we explore the world of the traditional Japanese martial arts. The Inside Look podcast is brought to you by our amazing patrons over at Patreon. If you are enjoying this work, please consider supporting me at patreon.com forward slash Canada. To contribute to this effort, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at tokushikai.canada or subscribe to our newsletter at subscribe at tokushikai.ca. Until next time, thanks for listening.